Coming up with a funny intro? That's my kryptonite. I'm Kevin Leeson. Finally, the atmosphere does something good for us. I'm Joe Fulgham. I'm Fraser Kane, the man, not the asteroid. Goodness gracious, hot balls of rock! I'm Torn Atkinson, and this is Caustic Soda. It's the Caustic Soda Podcast! Yay! It's time to set the mics up. It's time for Tales of Woe. It's time to take the red pill on the Caustic Soda Show. It's time to do our research, unless your name is Joe. It's time to load the wiki on the Caustic Soda Show. To introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it makes me very hungry to introduce to you... Fraser Kane! But now let's get things started. Why don't you get things started? It's time to get things started on the informational, aberrational, strangulational, nauseational, strapped in for the... Classic Soda Show! Near-Earth Objects. I'm a near-Earth object. You're very near to Earth. I'm very near. Generally speaking. Unless I jump, then I'm, well, still pretty near. You're still pretty near. Uh, Cosmically speaking. Yeah. Yeah. And our special guest from Universe Today is Fraser Kane. Hey, guys. How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm ready to talk about Neos. Yeah, absolutely. That's That's what we call it in the biz. Neos. Oh, wow. Yeah. Whoa. That's an actual technical term. Just to let you know that I actually, well, I don't have like a lot of qualifications to talk about this, but I do have an asteroid named after me. No, <laughs> really? Yeah, I do. Is it I Kane do. or Fraser? It's, it's <laughs> asteroid, like, I forget, 185. It's got a bunch of numbers. It's asteroid Fraser Kane. 158092 uh, oh, nice. Fraser Kane. There Fraser you go. Kane, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. You also have a, your own podcast. That's right. Yeah. No, I have a fairly well-known podcast called Astronomy Cast, which is a theoretically weekly podcast that I do with uh, astrophysicist Dr. Pamela Gay, who is amazing and knows everything about space. Each week, we pick a different topic in space and astronomy, black holes, dark matter, dark energy, the ultimate fate of the universe, uh, the space shuttle, etc. And we just yak about it. Is that astronomycast.com? Astronomycast.com, yeah. Right. Yeah, and you can so find it on iTunes cast. and iTunes. So yeah. Fraser, I'm a uh, Sagittarius. How's my next year look? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you sure. just made Fraser laugh. <laughs> you know, you just like hit me at some primal level there. I think you brought up is like I'm right now just thinking back to all of the astrology battles that we have on all of the fronts. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm joking. I have, no, 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 no. It's, I, I get, In email I get it. format, I get it. I'd be JK at the end of that. <laughs> the smiley face with a wink. I didn't take it seriously. If you want to know about 2012, though, about the end of the uh, the world because of the Mayan calendar, I love that, too. Of course, yeah. yeah. I, I guess I don't have to ask you about your bona fides. I think your astronomy cast uh, yeah. a little intro kind of probably summed it all up quite and, nicely. And uh, don't you also have a meteorite on your desk right now or something like that? Well, I don't have it on my desk. I think it's in a drawer. And then no, I have another one in the, uh, in the kitchen room but uh i'm surprised you knew about that yeah uh i've listened to i think you guys have done like three episodes on meteors yeah so so you can go on to ebay right now and you can buy meteorites and there's kind of two kinds of meteorites you can buy you can buy the stone ones and you can buy the metal ones the stone ones are kind of lame because they're just like a rock but the metal ones are awesome 
So you want to find the... They will sort of, give you superpowers. They will give you superpowers. They're very radioactive. And so what are the, a lot of these are is great big iron meteorites smashed into the atmosphere within the last few thousand years, broke up in fragments, litter parts of Russia, parts of the Middle East. And so people are constantly finding these and then selling them on eBay. And they'll like, either you can buy like whole chunks or they'll slice them up and you can buy pieces of them. And they're not that expensive. Like, How do you tell uh, from a meteorite and just a regular old piece of rock? Well, that's the problem, right? That's why the iron ones are so clearly not of this world. You know, the regular rock ones, someone who knows what they're doing has to vouch for it. But any four-year-old will look at a meteorite and like an iron one and go, Oh, what is that? It's oh, so cool. you have to get a weatherman to vouch for it because they're meteorologists. <laughs> <laughs> my uh, yeah, me- <laughs> meteorologist, my so yeah, so the the one that I have looks like a piece of metal splashed. Cool, right? right. Like a, like a like a droplet of water that splashed and then froze out of metal. It's really oh, pretty sweet. Oh, that is cool. Yeah, it's like it's just like in Terminator Two. Yeah, oh, exactly. Yeah. yeah, but imagine nice. it froze instead of just kept chasing you. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong. A meteorite is one that has entered the Earth's atmosphere, and a meteor is still flying about in space. Right. So, and don't forget a meteoroid. What's the difference between a meteor and a meteoroid? So, so meteoroid is space. Meteor is crashing through the atmosphere. Meteorite has has landed. landed. Oh, okay. So there's three stages. So when you're in space, um, you want to be protected from meteoroids. Right. And and when you I look sure up do. and you see the streaks in the sky, those are the meteors. And yeah, and when when you find a strange rock. That's a that's a meteorite. I want to be protected by a meteorite at all times. That's why I'm wearing a large hat right now. <laughs> well, you are protected by meteorites thanks to the Earth's atmosphere. Oh, whew. I can take this hat off. God, it's so hot. <laughs> well, at least it's good for something, that atmosphere. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, huge chunks of rock are... are there's, I forget, there's like tons of, of debris is getting burned up in the atmosphere like every day. Yeah, like, it's, that, it's like adding to the mass of the Earth every day. That atmosphere certainly didn't save Joe from his sunburn yesterday. Ooh, no. Well, it saved him from a way worse sunburn. <laughs> That's right? true. And radiation <laughs> poisoning. A flaming piece of debris. Yeah. Well, I guess it's a, it's a trade-off. I would have stepped outside and burst into flame. <laughs> you know, think about, like, you know, when you hear about the ozone hole, if you want to go get a way worse sunburn, yeah. just head down to Antarctica, and you'll experience the atmosphere's uh, protective help. But bring a help. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Hold on, I'm bringing up a website to get a flight down to... Uh, Antarctica. Yeah. Antarctica. Well, to no. get a worse sunburn? Yeah. The quest for the perfect sunburn? <laughs> I, you don't want to know what I will do to make a good podcast. <laughs> so while we're talking terminology, what's the difference between a meteor and an asteroid? A meteoroid and an asteroid? Well, then it's just a matter of size. That's what she said. You know, typically people consider meteoroids to be like little, the little ones, the microscopic stuff. And with asteroids, you're looking at objects that are that are larger, but it's but it's really just a, a blend between the two. So, mm. has anybody no. quantified what when no. you cross over to meteor meteoroid? Space. Even the astrophysicists are not that anal. They oh. they can barely figure out what is a planet, right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so you know, and they fight on what's a planet and what's a dwarf planet and what's a. Kuiper belt object and all that. So, so no, fight no. with like sticks and stuff like that, like that, the whole Star Trek scene. The words version of that, yeah. you know, <laughs> I mean, it's sort of thesis documents and writing and giving speeches. But you can imagine in your mind really that they're on some alien landscape battling with uh, whatever those uh, Vulcan weapons were. 
5,000 quatloos on the newcomer. I would totally buy a ticket to two physicists in a cage, I gotta tell you. I mean, the Pluto controversy has separated astronomers pretty hard. I mean, yeah. there was some pretty mean things said back and forth. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, they're passionate. <laughs> You know, I deeply disagree with Dr. So-and-so. That's, you know, that's <laughs> them fighting words. 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 <laughs> there was a lot of blood spilled that day. I've got some word origins here. Uh, meteor comes from Greek, meta, meaning over beyond, and eros, lifted, hovering in the air. Asteroid, also from the Greek, star-like, aster, meaning star, and uh, eidos, form or shape, so shape of the star asteroid okay and then we haven't talked about comets icy interlopers from the outer solar system exactly uh literally means long-haired star huh. from the greek cometes yeah everyone's worried about the asteroids but they're not the ones to really be worried about it's those comets so what's a comet sort of a loose ball of rock and ice that formed you know at the beginning of the solar system and, and why are they more dangerous well they're more dangerous because they come out of nowhere all of the asteroids are in fairly stable known orbits and astronomers have actually identified a huge percentage of the big asteroids they know where most of the potential deadly asteroids are now they're they're sort of doing another round where they're going to start to find even the smaller ones okay. so it's possible that within the next couple of decades astronomers will have mapped out you know 90% of all of the potentially dangerous asteroids in the entire solar system and why can't they do that with comets? Well, because the comets come from a completely different area of the solar system. So Is that the Oort cloud? Yeah, well, it's the Oort cloud. So oh, there's, yeah. there's the short-period comets and the long-period comets. And the short-period comets are the ones that you find orbiting the sun in a fairly predictable orbit. You see them every couple of years. But you so like the, Halley's Comet. Yeah, I think it's a short-period comet. So you see it every 78 years, right? Yeah, like we know when it's coming back, right? Like it seems Yeah, it's predictable. very predictable, yeah. But the long-period comets, these are ones that we've never seen before. And they maybe have been traveling for 10,000 years before they get into the inner solar system. So they come out of nowhere, they're moving very fast, much faster than, than asteroids are, and there's no way to predict them. Well, how do they get started? Like, is somebody out there with a giant slingshot, like, firing them willy-nilly at the universe? Called the sun. That is exactly how it's done. <laughs> no, uh, astronomers aren't entirely sure. And this is where, you know, it sort of crosses into the woo-woo stuff, right? So the traditional conventional idea is that our Oort cloud surrounds the the sun, you know, out to a distance of like, you know, 100,000 astronomical units. So it's it's really big. It's past Pluto. Way past Pluto. Like Pluto is 45 astronomical units. I I forget the exact number. But, you know, 100 times the distance of Pluto, way further. And so... We have the Oort cloud, and then we're kind of interacting with other stars and their potential Oort clouds. And so mm-hmm. you have these gravitational interactions, and you get like a little kick, and then that pushes a comet into some kind of trajectory that slowly makes its way towards towards the sun. You know, you get these just slight gravitational bumps, and that's enough for things to be pushed into these stranger orbits. The more unconventional ideas is that we, you know, we might have a brown dwarf companion to the sun that's on a really long orbit because there actually is a, a rise of impacts on a 65 million year cycle. That means we're due. We are, we, are, we are actually due on that. Give or take a couple hundred thousand years. Yeah, give or so, take a couple yeah. of million years. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And so something jiggles these comets and then sends them into a trajectory that, that comes down into the sun. So there's no way to observe the Oort cloud directly. Scientists just infer that it exists because of these 
these strange orbits that we see. We see the comets coming. Uh, since we had mentioned the regularity of uh, impact events, large collisions with five-kilometer objects uh, happen approximately once every 10 million years, the last known being the uh, Cretaceous-Tertiary extinction 65 million years ago. That we know uh, then, of. Yeah. Then we have asteroids one kilometer in diameter strike the Earth every 500,000 years on average, going down to 50 meters... Strike the Earth once every thousand years, similar to what happened in Tunguska in 1908, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Yeah, I like that one. Uh, once per year, with as much energy as Little Boy, the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima, uh, which is approximately 15 kilotons of TNT. Uh, these ordinarily explode in the upper atmosphere, and most are all solids and vaporized. That's once a year. Hooray, atmosphere! <laughs> yeah, you have no idea how much that atmosphere is protecting you. So uh, why is it preferable for a meteorite to hit land rather than the ocean? It's, I mean, you're talking about, like, like the little ones. Who cares, right? Yeah. You know, little ones, but you drop on the land, and you pick it up, and you go, that's... Because they're, you know, they're easier to find when they land on the yeah. land, right? So it's good for eBay sellers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All of that, you know, <laughs> 70% of the Earth is covered by ocean, and all those meteorites are lost to eBay sellers. <laughs> So that is a that is a big downside. It's a crime against humanity. So obviously, when you get to a, beyond a certain size, though, you would think like, oh no, if a big asteroid hits the water, that's a good thing, right? You know, because it's not wiping out our Cause, city. Because it's not wiping our city instead cities, of landing but, on our city, right? But what actually happens from a from a big enough asteroid, there's kind of no such thing as the water, right? It just hits so hard and completely explodes when it hits the surface. It'll dig right down through the water, through the bedrock. Right. You know, and release a tremendous amount of material from from the seafloor and from itself, which then, you know, if you get a big enough object, that material flies up into space and goes around the whole Earth and then rains back down as hot balls of rock, which then causes mm-hmm. the whole atmosphere to heat up to the point that everything on the surface of the Earth boils. Everything on the surface of the Earth yeah. boils. Yeah. So, like, you know, you're you're mm. you're in an oven, no matter where you are on the surface of the Earth. If the, if the impact right. is big enough, right? We're all like little uh, little lobsters thrown into the boiling pot. Right. Exactly. And that's what you get if the asteroid hits on land or it hits on water, which is terrible, obviously. Yeah. But if it hits on water, you get the additional problem of a tsunami, and you know, not like a regular tsunami, but like yeah. a mega mega tsunami. So you've got <laughs> this enormous impact. The water has to get out of the way. It forms this gigantic wave in all directions and so completely inundates huge chunks of the coastline around the whole world. Yeah. So, so you have that added problem of you know, not only are you being boiled alive, but you've had your house washed away from a big wave. So, so the water <laughs> impacts are worse. You've got nothing. Unless you have a surfboard. And you just ride it out. <laughs> but you get that in-between stage, right, where the asteroid isn't big enough to actually cause that really horrible worldwide catastrophic yeah. impact, but it still is able to create that really awful wave. Mm-hmm. That's when you get the situation where... Rather just destroy one city in the middle of North America than all the cities on all the coasts of the on world. On all the coasts of the world, yeah. Yeah, and you get these splashes back and forth, and yeah, it's, it ruins everyone's day. So, Especially if that city is Winnipeg. <laughs> Winnipeg should Where be okay. I was born. Winnipeg will be all right. <laughs> you know, it's far away from everything. But <laughs> no one would miss it. It's far away from the sea. <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. It would become a new waterfront property. You know? Oh, yeah. So in other words, almost any size rock that hits the water is going to generate that wave and cause a problem for all the coasts. Now, I would like to talk about the Torino scale. Sure. The Grand Torino scale, like how old uh, Clint Eastwood looks these days? Uh, you measure the size of a meteorite against how many Grand Torinos would fit <laughs> in that area. How many Grand Torinos you could destroy. Uh, nice. There you go. How many Grand Torinos you can destroy? So yeah. what is the Torino scale? So the Torino scale uh, uses a score from 0 to 10 to grade the likelihood that an object will impact the Earth. Well, it, it, it's more than 10? that, right? It's more than just the that it's going to impact the Earth. It's also how much damage it will do if it impacts the Earth. And this scale is only out of 10? Yeah. It's only out of 10. So I'd like to do a pop quiz then. Each one of these numbers probably cuts a pretty wide swath. You classify an asteroid for its chance of potential havoc. So, right. okay. so it's not like it's not like the Richter scale or the whatever is the the F scale for tornadoes. That's after they've done their damage. You're like, oh, that was a mm-hmm. right. You this know, is a potential harm. That was a Category thing. Three hurricane that destroyed our city. That already happened, and so you then can come out and measure your hurricane and know how bad it was. But in this case, you're you're measuring potential for destruction. So okay, all right, right. It's the right. future. Little pop quiz here. So. I'll give you a couple ones. Okay. The likelihood of collision is zero. That's a zero on the scale. All right. Okay. I, uh, oh, I was going to get that one. Here's a description. I go, I'll give you the description. Okay. Can you give me the ranking on the scale? Okay. okay. A close encounter meriting attention by astronomers. Current calculations give a 1% or greater chance of collision capable of regional devastation. Most likely, new telescopic observations will lead to reassignment to level zero. Attention by public and by public officials is merited if the encounter is less than a decade away. I'm going to go with a one. Yeah, I agree. That's a one. If it, especially, I mean, you kind of think you gave it away because you said it might go down to a zero. Yeah, that sounds like a one. That's a four. That's a four. What? What's oh. a one? One is a routine discovery in which a pass near the Earth is predicted that poses no unusual level of danger. Current calculations show the chance of collision is extremely unlikely with no cause for public attention or public concern. Oh, I get it. Okay. It, was, it was the regional part. That made it the four, like that it could do lots of damage, but it was a very low chance. And then it could be a zero because they can say now there's no chance. And so it doesn't matter that it's huge or small because it's zero chance of hitting. It seems like pretty much everything between one and four ends with it will likely be reassigned to level zero. It's good to know. All right. And this was the rating given to Apophis, which we can talk about in a minute. Was given. I believe it's changed now. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. A close encounter by a large object posing a serious but still uncertain threat of a global catastrophe. Critical attention by astronomers is needed to determine conclusively whether or not a collision will occur. If the encounter is less than three decades away, government contingency planning may be warranted. I'm going to say eight. Oh, I was going to go seven. I'm going to go six. Phrase is on it. (sighs) Six, exactly. It gets a mm-hmm. lot more catastrophic sounding shortly. <laughs> okay. Here's the next one. A collision is certain, capable of causing localized destruction for an impact over land or possibly a tsunami if close offshore. Such events occur on average between once per 50 to several thousand years. That's an eight. What was the range of damage you said? Localized destruction. Localized. I'm gonna, I think that might still be a six. But it said, no, it said impact is certain. Certain, but it's only localized, and the other one was possible. And I, well, I'll say seven then. I'm going to say seven as well. It's eight. 
A collision is certain, capable of causing global climatic catastrophe that may threaten the future (laughs) of civilization as we know it, whether impacting land or ocean. Such events occur on average once per 100,000 years or less often. Okay, that's nine. It's a nine, because I'm going to say ten is probably, it's going to hit and crack the earth in half. Crack the earth in half, exactly. Yeah, that does sound like a nine to me, too. That's a ten. That is a ten. Yeah. There's nothing worse than that. Global climatic catastrophe that may threaten the future of civilization as we know it. I demand an eleven for it's just going to pass right through us and we're going to get cut in half. Yeah. (laughs) Cracking it like like something between a hammer and an anvil. That is a little bit worse than global climatic Uh, catastrophe. catastrophe. Oh, no, it's way too hot. That's a little different from, oh, my God, we've been shattered into a (laughs) hundred tiny pieces. We're all floating on our own little asteroid now. That's the situation that I was talking about, right? Where where the asteroid is so big that it doesn't matter if it hits on land or water. It's the same thing. I'm kind of hoping that uh, I don't see anything above a four. More interesting is how many objects are on the Torino scale right now. There's one. I mean, the time we're recording. So oh, there's in one. July of 2011, there is one on the Torino scale right now. Yeah. And is it above a four? No. Is it okay. Apophis? No. No, Apophis is past, right? Yeah, Apophis is, is But it out. was coming back in 2029 or something, isn't it? Yeah, no, there's only one object on the on the scale right now. Uh, it's a one. Is it Fraser Kane? No. <laughs> um, <laughs> Somehow attracted to Victoria, British Columbia. <laughs> yeah. 2007. Oh, no, maybe there's two. Um, 2011 AG5. Has five potential impacts between 2040 and 2047, 140 meters across. 140 meters, okay. Yeah. That's big. And then 2007 VK184, it's going to have four potential impacts between 2048 and 2057, Mm. and it is 130 meters across. Oh, wow. So both of those are Tunguska-sized, or bigger even, because they say it was... I would say bigger than Tunguska. Tunguska was probably like a 50 meter. These are are probably bigger. But just the right size for Bruce Willis to take care of. Uh, Bruce Willis can take care of an asteroid any size. What are you talking about? (laughs) He needs a Texas-sized asteroid. (laughs) You know what's funny about that is there aren't a lot of Texas-sized asteroids out there. Like, I think there's like one... That's why they made the movie about it, because yeah. it was so rare. Yeah. There are some Texas-shaped asteroids, but they're much smaller. But this, oh. this, whole, this whole danger from the skies that we've got of, of things just falling on us that right now we probably can't do very much about except say, oh, here it comes. This is why I'm so pro-technology, and I think people who are, we get to go back to nature, man. Science is making our lives worse. I'm like, maybe you're right in the short term. I don't agree. But in the long term, eventually... We're going to need the technology to deal with something really bad like this. Yeah. No, if, if I was running NASA, I'm still waiting for the call, um, <laughs> I would have, like, a couple of priorities. One, find aliens. Why can't okay. we, you know, like, get steady Who rolling. Who says they haven't already, Fraser? Go let, on. Let's get, you know, let's, <laughs> let's find some aliens. And two, let's find all the asteroids and figure out a way to, to make sure they never cause us a problem. I got a much simpler plan. Two words. Force field. Well, what you need to do is encase, you need to encase the Earth in a cloud, you know, of nitrogen and oxygen. Oh, yeah. How can we do that? I don't know. I don't know. And that, that <laughs> will protect you from most potential impacts. It would, it All would right, be let's get proof. on it, NASA. Yeah. <laughs> you hacks. We've got to solve this oxygen-nitrogen problem. Yeah. So what was the deal with, uh, with Apophis? Because I know there was a big concern in 2004 because initial observations indicated that there was like a 3% probability that was going to hit the Earth in 2029. Back when we were first reporting, you know, some of these kinds of asteroid discoveries, you'd get these scares because, you know, astronomers would, would make one observation and then a couple of weeks later they'd make a second observation and they'd go, oh, that's prob- that could hit the Earth. 
right? Yeah. But in fact, I mean, the con- you know, when you think about it, the, the asteroid is going to go around the Earth, around the Sun, potentially dozens of times, and the, you know, the kinds of orbital interactions it's going to have with all the other planets, the way things have to line up for it to actually hit the Earth is so remote. But you can't know until you've done a lot of, ob- of observations. And so, unfortunately, the way this works, right, the scientists go, oh, we found this asteroid, and we found here it's got a 1% chance of striking the Earth. And, you know, and they're not concerned about it because they know that once they finally do all the math, they'll, they'll know that it's zero. But the media mm. freaks out, and they're like, and they write a big news report, and then people email me. Is it true that we're all going <laughs> to die in 2029? No, just some of us. There's a chance, but probably not. And then a couple new cults start up. Start up. Yeah, exactly. Start, you know, dancing around naked because the end of the world is coming. And, and then we get the second press release where the scientists say, oh, you know, we've done more observations, and now we found that there you know, isn't a chance that it's going to strike the Earth. And for some reason, that doesn't make the front page. No. It's like John Stewart says, you don't write the news story about the truck that didn't explode. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so Apophis is, is one of those, probably the best example, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to come past the Earth in, was it 2029? Very close. But now it looks like it's, you know, it's not going to come close enough to strike the Earth. And then it's going to have a orbital interaction with the Earth as it passes by, and it's going to have another encounter with us a couple of years later. In 2036. Again, 2036, and maybe hit the Earth again, but, but right now it seems like all that is zero because astronomers have been watching the object for several years and have done lots of good observations. But the best way to do this is to actually fly a mission out, land some kind of beacon on the asteroid itself, and then you can do really precise measurements to its distance and its velocity and really figure out where it's going to be and there's some some really neat missions on the table to try and to try and do that the european space agency uh is thinking about landing their don quixote probe on uh, apophis is it shaped like a windmill the don quixote uh, maybe they all are though when you look at them that's true um, <laughs> just just with two arms right they're gonna land it on the asteroid and it'll sit down and put up its little windmill attachment and then they'll be like why is this not moving <laughs> i don't understand why why don't windmills work on asteroids i just can't stop chuckling every time i hear the word probe and i am that juvenile yeah probe 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 mm-hmm. um <laughs> <laughs> you got it out of your system yet probably the never probe will, the probe has me. been inserted into the asteroid Does that help <laughs> Very Continue, slowly. please. Yeah. <laughs> don't don't look at the childish man on the side of the road. You should, see driving. His, you should see his face. It's all scrunched up in laughter. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people want to go back to the moon for the human spaceflight, but there's a lot of really good reasons to go to asteroids, not to the moon. Even though the moon is close, it's actually very expensive to get to. Is it cheaper to get to an asteroid? It is. Yeah, because it takes a little longer, but the, but the amount of the delta V, the, the amount of energy that you need to get a spacecraft out of the Earth's orbit and into orbit around the moon is actually quite high. There are asteroids that have very similar orbits to the Earth. And so you only have to get a little bit out of the Earth's orbit and then just move over and get into orbit around Mm. that asteroid. So it actually requires a lot less energy to get to asteroids than to even get to the moon. But, you know, in many cases, the mission would take longer and the asteroid would be further, but you could carry more payload, you could use less energy, the rocket would be cheaper... There's a lot of really good reasons to go to asteroids, as well as to, you know, figure out if they're going to kill us or not. It's not nearly as sexy, though. Well, it is. Hopping around on an asteroid, mining it. I think that'd be pretty cool. You know, they should start a marketing <laughs> campaign, right? Like, just uh, air Armageddon, like, dozens and dozens of times, get people pumped up about it. And get that political will. Yeah, right. if you could get Bruce Willis on board with that. You would really get the conspiracy people in a tizzy. 
<laughs> because they already think that's happening. Let's talk about destruction. Uh, it is caustic soda. So Tunguska uh, occurred near the Tunguska River in what is now Krasnoyarsk Kral, Russia, in 1908. Uh, believed to have been caused by the airburst of a large meteoroid or comet fragment at an altitude of 5 to 10 kilometers above the Earth's surface. And general agreement is that it was pr- at least 30 meters across. Ouch. I've seen pictures of this. I was actually researching this for a story that I was thinking about writing for a short while. And it was really wild to actually see the photos because there was a big explosion. And it's not a very populated area, but anybody who was even remotely nearby like it was an earthquake explosion it happened at night and you know the sky lit up like the day and you know there's all these sort of anecdotal reports they ran out there with uh, some rudimentary cameras what would it be in early 20th century and uh, yeah they've got all these photos of this area which was completely flattened like you'll see entire mountainsides with all the trees knocked to the ground right they show like uh, little lakes with all the fish in them dead and all the rest of that stuff from some sort of like concussive or explosive impact. And Well, the scary thing to really think about is what if that was over a city, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like, like it happened to hit Siberia, but what if it went, was over Paris? Yeah, I mean, it, it entered the atmosphere. I mean, the Earth is spinning. I mean, it really yeah. could have been, been anywhere. anywhere at any time, right? Oh, the humanity. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and so what right now you see, like, it is those trees just blown over like matchsticks, mm-hmm. and they've been, you know, all of the needles are just, you know, all the branches are gone. We'll put all these photos up on uh, the website, causticsodapodcast.com, if anyone wants to come and check them out. But that, but that's the worry, is that at now we're a lot more populated. You know, there's places in the United States which are all city. Right. You know, from from Florida to Canada, it is all one big city. You know, you could drop an asteroid anywhere on there and, and be assured to oh, hit a point. lot of people. If, it, if something like that had hit the water, it would have caused a tsunami. If it had hit the land over, you know, some population, it would have killed a lot of people it would have just been like it could not have hit in a safer place (laughs) yeah Uh, although the meteoroid or comet burst in the air rather than hitting the surface this event is still referred to as an impact estimates of the energy of the blast range from 5 to 30 megatons of tnt with 10 to 15 megatons most likely roughly equal to the united states castle bravo thermonuclear test in 1954 and about 1,000 times more powerful than the atomic bomb dropped on hiroshima but this is that same situation where now all the nuclear weapons none of them hit the ground they blow them all up in the air right Mm -hmm. yeah right they air burst them because that's where you get the most damage so in fact having these things explode in the atmosphere you know didn't help anybody you know Mm. it's not like you you're glad that it didn't hit the ground it was awful it knocked over 80 million trees yeah covering 2,000 square kilometers Think if this was, say, densely populated area. So that's uh, 2,150 square kilometers. I mean, that's that's massive. You put people in that kind of area, they they're all less tough than a tree. Oh, for sure. <laughs> right? Yeah. Speak they for just yourself, be skeletons. <laughs> Speak for yourself. And it's not like trees knocked over are like standing there, and then there's a force, and they go, "Oops!" and they trip and fall. These trees have to get busted off, yeah, in order to fall over or ripped up from the ground. That's more than enough impact to kill a human being yeah i mean you look at like mount st helens as a similar kind of situation where you could see all the trees knocked over but in that case it was you know horrible mud flows as opposed to an impact but it's the same kind of look it's just this complete devastation on a gigantic scale and that was like a 50 meter object i mean we were so lucky on where it hit and and how contained the damage was 
but those hit every thousand years. Well, so we've got a lot of time, right? Yeah, we've got That's a lot of time. Yeah, no, yeah, at least 900 years. It's not our problem. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, we could have, we could have, obviously, you know, we could have another one hit tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. statistic. I was making a joke about statistical oh. clumping not happening. Yeah. So it's the same thing with uh, you mix up your songs in iTunes, and all of a sudden you get two songs by the same band in a row, and you're like, wait a minute, this is supposed to be random. It is random. It is. That's how random works, yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk about Chicxulub then. Chicxulub. The Chicxulub crater in the Yucatan Peninsula. All right. Uh, the last known impact of an object 10 kilometers or more in diameter. So this was created by Tony Shalhoub's overweight sister, Chicxulub. <laughs> that was a bit of a stretch. <laughs> but I like it. All right, thank you. It, the crater is actually buried beneath the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico, more than 180 kilometers in diameter. Uh, the impacting bolide that formed the crater was at least 10 kilometers in diameter. What is a bolide? Like when you see fireballs, right? Mm-hmm. some of the big ones, those are bolides. So when you okay. see this really big, streaky meteor going across the sky that seems to hang forever, and then you hear someone's you know car alarm down the street, car gets hit by an object, that was a bolide, so a big meteor. Yeah, and in this cool. case, a 10-kilometer meteor. The bolide that hit uh, the Yucatan Peninsula... Estimated 96 teratons of TNT. By contrast, the most powerful man-made explosive device ever detonated, the Tsar Bomba, had a yield of only 50 megatons of TNT, making the Chicxulub impact 2 million times more powerful. Oof, duh. Is this the one that they figure wiped out the dinosaurs? Yes. The evidence, I mean, the story of this is amazing, right? Because you've got the discovery... Yeah, it was discovered by satellite photos or something. No, no, like no. That. About like 20 years ago, there was a there's a team. Oh, I'm going to forget his name. He uncovered this thing called the um, there's this strange layer. There's a black layer around the whole Earth at a certain okay. point in the geologic record. So you can dig down at almost any place on Earth, and you'll see this this black line. Okay, and that's the KT boundary. That's the KT boundary. Yeah, and that that black line actually has a higher amount of iridium than the background above and below. And, okay. and iridium is a very rare resource on Earth, but it's fairly common in asteroids in space. And so he was – Alvarez, I think? Um, he was able to determine mm-hmm. – he was able to measure and figure out that, in fact, that you know that black layer, the KT boundary, that had to have come from an asteroid you know, with a high amount of iridium. And the thing is is that that's the end of the, what, the Jurassic period, right? So that's the moment when all the dinosaurs disappeared. So if you look at the geologic record, before the KT boundary, you got dinosaurs. After the KT boundary, no dinosaurs. It's just like a, someone s- switched a light bulb. Okay. We both discovered the most gigantic, damaging asteroid that had recently hit the Earth, and you know, a possible cause for why the dinosaurs disappeared. It's a good year. But didn't they, I think they found this crater accidentally by like, through some sort of like Seattle imaging or satellite imaging. And I think it was oil and gas research in the Gulf of Mexico and found this, these strange formations. I mean, on land, it's not visible, but in the water, under the water, it's a little more visible. But yeah, and they've actually turned up. I mean, they're really hard to find. I mean, the the, uh, the terrible irony, right, is that the the Earth is is always on the move. So you know, we've got weathering and geologic processes and volcanoes and earthquakes and all that is constantly reshaping the surface of the Earth. So even an object that gouged out a seventy kilometer crater is you know gone millions of years later. We can barely see mm-hmm. it. And the older ones, they're all completely gone. This is the most recent one, but there are dozens of these right. kinds of impacts, even worse, going back into the geologic record, and, and we can't even find where they happened. Well, from the quite large 
to the not-quite-so-large. I want to talk about the peak-scale meteorite, because no one has ever been killed, to our knowledge, by a meteorite. But there was a car that was crushed. Not crushed. The corner of a car was crushed. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> in recent times, in 1992, in uh, Peekskill, New York. That's legit. Uh, and it was captured on film by multiple cameras during a nighttime football game. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. Oh, I'll have to put this footage up on the website. And one of the pieces smashed into a parked Chevrolet Malibu. Well, it was a Chevy after all. It kind of deserved it. <laughs> Didn't you used to own a Chevy Malibu, Tarn? No, I had a Chevy was, Nova. Oh, Chevy Nova. Mm-hmm. That's right. That would have been awesome if a meteorite hit a Nova. Yeah. yeah. That would have been way too perfect. Then I would have changed it to a supernova. <laughs> it, won't, it won't go. Previously news, June 2009, Essen, Germany. Uh, Garrett Blank, 14, was on his way to school when that he That sounds saw- like a fake name. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for pointing that out. I never would have guessed. Sounds fake. Was on his way to school when he saw a ball of light, quote-unquote, heading straight towards him from the sky. A red-hot, pea-sized piece of rock then hit his hand before bouncing off and causing a foot-wide crater in the ground. What? It hit his hand, then created a crater? The teenager survived the strike, but with a nasty three-inch-long scar on his hand. Oh, so it kind of grazed his hand. I'll do my little Hansel voice here. Nice. At first, I just saw a ball of light, and then I suddenly felt a pain in my hand. Then a split second after, there was an enormous bang, like a crash of thunder. The noise that came after the flash of light was so loud that my ears were ringing for hours afterwards. When it hit me, it knocked me flying, and then was still going fast enough to bury itself in the road. Oh my God, that sounded like a young Baron Underbite from Venture Brothers, <laughs> like, like uncanny. How, is he sure that it hit him first and then hit the the road, or like he just got hit by some? Well, it's a fourteen-year-old kid, so yeah, it could be shrapnel, yeah. Because yeah. that's you know, like it hit my hand, it blew my arm off, yeah, and then exactly. it hit the road. <laughs> right. He's got a three-inch scar. Come on. I know he should have a you know no arm. <laughs> yeah. The only other known example of a human survive a human being surviving a meteor strike happened in Alabama, USA, in November 1954, when a grapefruit-sized fragment crashed through the roof of a house, bounced off furniture, and landed on a sleeping woman. Oh. <laughs> 
One of the really neat things about these is if you find a, an asteroid, or I'm sorry, a, a bolide very quickly and crack it open, sometimes it can still be cold inside. Mm. From space. Or perhaps there might be a blob. Yeah, and so the the town. (laughs) So the the actual impact doesn't necessarily, you know, completely melt the whole thing. And in fact, you know, as it's dropping through the atmosphere, then it just turns into a rock falling from a great height. Once it hits terminal velocity, right? The world's largest meteorite uh, was Hoba. Have you heard of this one? No. Hoba, a 66-ton iron meteorite, tabular in shape and about nine feet long. Nine. I got a piece wide. of that on my desk. Oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Where did uh, it hit? Not far from Grootfontein in the Atjozujupa region of Nam- Namibia. Namibia. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So, so you can buy pieces of that. On eBay. And it was thought to have fallen to Earth about 80,000 years ago, is mostly iron with some nickel and trace amounts of cobalt and other elements, uh, metals. An abundance of iron oxides in the soil around the meteorite suggests that it was much larger than 66 tons when it landed and has suffered significant losses from oxidation. But there is no crater present around the site of the meteorite. And it's one of those situations <laughs> where you've got these Bedouin guys walking around the desert picking up chunks of metal and selling them on eBay. Road trip. Road trip to Namibia. <laughs> Road trip to Namibia. Well, you, the, the best place to go is actually Antarctica. Right, of course. Because you Unless can like, you don't take like a snowmobile and, and zip out on the ice, and you can see rocks sitting on top of the snow. Because they're black and the snow is white. Because they're black and the snow is white. And so that's how you know. There could be asked, the, you know, meteorites all around you right now, but you would never see them because they're just hard to tell from being regular rocks. But in Antarctica, nothing's rocks. So when you find a rock sitting on the snow... You found a meteorite, and they find you know sometimes several a day when they're when unless they're it's in those cagey penguins mining the Earth's core, <laughs> or, yeah. and they so just drop something. Penguins? It'd be hard to spot if they were being uh, if a whole troop of polar bears were like sleeping on top of it. Wait, polar bears aren't in Antarctica. I'm pretty sure they are. They also aren't in troops. Packs, herds, <laughs> or packs or herds, m- murders, whatever. So at the time that we're recording this, there's a spacecraft called Dawn, which is closing in on on an asteroid Vesta. So Dawn is a mission that's going to be going to two asteroids in the solar system in the asteroid belt. It's going to be going to Vesta and Ceres. Oh, it's going to do some okay. asteroid hopping. Yeah, it's going to go. And this is amazing. No spacecraft again has has orbited two objects you know, one after the other. So it's going to set some first, and it's going to take images, orbit one asteroid first, take some close images, and then move to the other one and take some close images and provide amazing research. It's going to reach Vesta July 16th. It's going to go into orbit. What are they hoping Vesta. to find? Like, what is, uh, what's the, is there sort of a stated mission involved? Are like, they going to drop a windmill on it? <laughs> yeah. Are yeah. they going to look for little egg sacs and bring back Face huggers? <laughs> yeah, they're going to Don Quixote it. So in the solar system, there is this thing called the frost line. And the frost line is the point at which the sun blasted away all of the ice and snow from inside the solar system. And the, and the frost line runs right through the asteroid belt. And so within that point, you have the dry inner solar system, which Earth is included. But then outside of that, you have the wet outer solar system, which is then frozen, and so you have the icy outer solar system. Mm. And the frost line is this distinguishing point. Some of the asteroids dry as a bone, others have snow and ice on them. So the frost line is in the asteroid belt. Is in the asteroid belt. That's oh, right. Neat. And so Vesta and Ceres, the two asteroids they're going to look at, lie on the two sides of the frost line. Ah. It's always greener on the other side of the asteroid belt. 
That's right. And they're going to examine one, and they're going to see what an asteroid would look like when it formed where all, where there was no water nearby, that it was completely dry. But then later on, it's going to then see the other side of that, where the, where there actually was water, and there's water potentially in pockets still on the, on the asteroid. Is it going to take internally. any samples? Is there a chance of it bringing an alien life form back to Earth? No, Say it's yes. not coming back. It's not coming <sighs> back. But there is a chance of it gaining its own intelligence in two centuries. V'ger, yeah, and and then merging a distress signal and uh, yeah. yeah, killing the Earth. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, that's likely. And on a related note, uh, the asteroid belt I recently learned uh, does not have enough mass to suggest that it used to be a planet. It was just kind of this celestial body that never formed. Okay. Yeah, it, it has less mass than Mars, than Mercury, has, you know, hmm. not very much mass at all. If you took all those rocks and put them together. Right. Well, let's do pop culture. All, all right. right. Uh, immediately pops to my mind is Empire Strikes Back. Where they go inside that cave to hide from those TIE fighters and then it ends up being the worm stomach. Yeah, exactly. Giant space worm stomach. That blew my mind. <laughs> Were those near-Earth objects, though? No, they weren't. It was near- a galaxy far, far away, It was a galaxy far away. I don't think you that. could actually call those near-Earth objects. But we could mention the fact that the asteroid belt is not anywhere that dynamic. (laughs) We haven't come across giant asteroid-sized space worms as of yet. Fraser, can you talk about the how what the asteroid belt really looks like compared to what we've seen in movies and TV shows in terms of size of the asteroids and the space between them and all that kind of stuff? Right. Well, the size. I mean, they they range from Texas size to to very small, but the the distance between them is the key. Right. That, you know, when you imagine, you know, passing through an asteroid field, you're imagining jumbled balls of asteroids all around you and you're having to deke them out and they're smashing into your spaceship and, you know, makes a dogfight more interesting. But the reality, of course, is that the asteroids are hundreds of thousands of kilometers apart, you know, at their closest point. Wow. You know, millions of kilometers apart at their closest point. So, in fact, when uh, scientists are trying to pilot spacecraft through the asteroid field, the time is spent trying to figure out how to get the spacecraft to pass near asteroids oh, and really? not avoid them. So, Fraser, what you're saying is that all the people in the Star Wars movies were actually hundreds of thousands of kilometers tall. Oh, yeah, maybe that's the, <laughs> the Millennium scale Falcon issue. was a million kilometers wide. Or they passed between two objects that had just recently collided. There you right, go. Right. right. It was a fresh asteroid belt. Right. Maybe it was the remains of Alderaan. <laughs> <laughs> Armageddon? Yeah. (laughs) I don't have a lot of complimentary things to say about this movie. (laughs) It Uh, had Steve Buscemi in it. I was terribly disappointed to find out that Steve Buscemi was going to be in it when they announced the cast, because I had nothing but respect for him up until that moment in time. (laughs) And I had nothing but respect for the Criterion Collection until they decided to add Armageddon to the Criterion Collection, Mm. which stands out like a sore thumb. It's like every Akira Kurosawa movie ever made. And then Armageddon. (laughs) (laughs) That movie is no good on so many levels. I think, you know, do a search for Phil Plate taking down Armageddon. Dr. Phil Plate, the bad astronomer from badastronomy.com. And we should mention his book, Death from the Skies, while we're talking about it. Death from the Skies, yeah. And uh, I recently rewatched... Bad Universe, Phil Plate's Bad Universe uh, TV show. Well, we finally had it come to Canada, right? He had a show specifically talking about near-Earth objects and talking about how it's a really bad idea to blow up an asteroid that's en route. Because then you end up with like 47,000 little asteroids? Yeah, it's kind of like instead of of shooting a slug at the Earth out of a giant space shotgun, you're shooting buckshot at the Earth out of a giant space shotgun. Yeah, although it might be slightly better because then you're going to have more surface area in order to get heated up and worn away by our atmosphere. You know what else Armageddon brought to us? 
it made Ben Affleck think that he was an action hero for a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> and then that it spawned a whole bunch of really crappy Ben Affleck-driven vehicles. Roger Ebert totally agrees with you. In his review, he says, The movie is an, is an assault on the eyes, the ears, the brain, common sense, and the human desire to be entertained. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't have phrased it better myself. Well, how does it compare to Deep Impact? Deep Impact was better. Have yeah. you guys seen it? Which one was Deep Impact? That was the one with Morgan Freeman as the president, right? Uh, uh, is it the one with, uh, with Elijah Wood, uh, like yeah. bicycling to, to the bunker or whatever? Motorcycling, yeah. Motorcycling, yeah, it was, it, yeah. Was, it was better. It was more realistic for sure. And it was a comet, I think. But it was that same old Earth got hit, got hit by one and it had lots of devastating impact. And then they were able to stop the other through a heroic sacrifice. Yeah, Deep Impact was much more about the people being involved in that happening. Whereas Armageddon was like a hero story. Don't get me wrong. I am by no way, shape, or form saying that Deep Impact was good. It is simply less odious (laughs) than Armageddon. That makes it better. It was better. Armageddon is one of those (laughs) movies that I completely can agree is terrible, and I still enjoy it anyway, and I don't know why. I have the same relationship with all the Transformers movies, but that's a different topic (laughs) altogether. (laughs) Two, I think I fell asleep. It was such an assault on the, the senses that they just shut down. Well, let's talk about Meteor Man. What is Meteor Man? Meteor Man is a movie. Okay. Yeah, loosely. Use that term loosely. <laughs> no, no, it's a movie. Okay. If you can name a black actor that isn't Morgan Freeman, the chances are he will be in this movie. Okay. Samuel L. Jackson. Oh, okay. <laughs> you win. You win this round, Lisa. <laughs> uh, and it's about a meteor that comes to Earth and gives powers to both the main character, who is also the producer, the director, the writer. <laughs> oh, I nice. can't remember his name. Robert uh, Townsend. Robert Townsend. Okay. And also gives powers to Bill Cosby, who okay. plays a homeless guy who kind of is like the deus ex machina of the movie. Okay. And, oh, it's just so weird and terrible. <laughs> I wish I could tell you more. <laughs> The main guy gets these powers, and he becomes a superhero who's defending his neighborhood from this kind of multi-organizational gang. Uh-huh. And the only, I think the only white guy in the movie is Frank Gorshin, known, uh, you may remember, from the, as the Riddler in the old Batman. Okay, yeah. all right. And uh, on Star Trek, the black on one side and white on the, the other guy, yeah. plays the head of the gang. So okay. all these black... It's very, very, guys are led by this one it's very shaft. old white yeah, guy. Yeah, this one it's old weird. white the man guy at the top weird. of the food chain, yeah. right? Uh, I watched it all the way through, though. Recently? Oh, in, in anticipation of this topic. Wow, that's yeah. dedication. Did you play some asteroids, too? <laughs> oh, I wish I had done that. <laughs> yeah. That, see, that's the pop culture reference that really sticks in my head is asteroids. Yeah, yeah. video game. Yeah, there you go. And why didn't they ever make a movie adaptation of that? I'm sure it's in development. Screw Resident Evil. I want to see asteroids. No. <laughs> Larry Niven and Jerry Pornell wrote Lucifer's Hammer back in 1977. Mm, This is just a great, crunchy, hard science fiction, full of excellent characters look at what would happen if a comet hit the Earth, and what are the outcomes of that, how do people deal with it, how is the world going to be changed afterwards. I cannot forget the scene where it actually hits, uh, I think it's between Australia and and America out in the ocean that it hits. You just said you couldn't forget. No, but I can't. can't. (laughs) You got me. What I can't you can forget neither remember nor is that, forget. Is that there's a bunch of <laughs> bunch of surfers out yeah. in, out in the water, and this massive tsunami comes in, and he quite accurately describes how the vast majority of them simply don't have the luck or skill or strength or 
just random placement to, to be able to survive. But one guy manages to I actually surf get up, surf it up, and get up and ride the wave. And he's, it's the greatest moment of his life. And then all of a sudden he realizes, now I'm heading into downtown L.A. Right. And there's a lot of skyscrapers in my way. Oh, crap. Yo, Lucifer's Hammer was good. It's pretty old now, and so a lot of the <laughs> more modern thinking... You know, remember the part where I said where everyone gets boiled alive? Yeah, that wasn't in, in there at all. That was, they didn't no. include that. They didn't include the boiling alive part while he was surfing. It would have been a lot shorter book. No scavenging for survival in the desolate wasteland of an asteroid-bombed Earth. It's mostly just people running around screaming on fire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course, there's a, a bunch of movies that kind of have comets in them, like uh, The Blob and uh, Creep Show. Yeah, with Stephen King getting all uh, moldy. Yeah, moldy, for lack of a better word. Yeah. And Night of the Comet from 1984, you guys remember that? Oh, yeah, that's the one with very few people living, right? Is it, that it? Yeah, it's basically anyone who was outside when the, when the comet came were reduced to little brown piles. Oh, really? And uh, a bunch of others were converted into zombies. So it's basically a zombie apocalypse movie. Um, Wasn't, did, didn't Day of the Triffids have like something like that? Everyone was outside, got blinded? That's right. There was like a comet uh, shower or something like that. And anyone who was outside looking at it was blinded. And that's when the Triffids took over. Actually, Night of the Living Dead, the lightly spoken of premise of the movie is that comets went by very close to earth and then the dead started to come back to life like that's no no explanation of why yeah no they don't they, they just don't like get obviously it. comets come very close to earth and then the dead come back to life simultaneously they must be inextricably linked it was the iridium maybe yeah let's go to comics then comet <laughs> comics there was a comet man okay so i recall briefly in the 90s I'm sure there's a I pretty much <laughs> any kind of sciencey descriptive word man yeah and uh, Captain Carrot and his amazing zoo crew got their powers from meteorites. And, of course, uh, Superman's nemesis rock. Kryptonite. <laughs> I don't know nemesis. what to call it. Kryptonite falls to Earth. Let's say we're on Earth, which we are. Right. Mm-hmm. And let's say we get sent away to another planet. Mm-hmm. Okay. Where we get powers because of the green in sun. In another yeah. solar system. Yeah, yeah in another yeah. solar system. So now we have great powers. Uh-huh. And we're sent in a spaceship, mm-hmm. and the planet explodes. That's right. And so are the rocks are now traveling as fast as our spaceship. Does that sound reasonable? No. No? <laughs> Fraser, you disagree? <laughs> How many do you want to give them here? Like, where should we draw the line here? On our yeah. science and our magic, uh, you, uh, you tell me where you, you draw a line in the question. sand, and then <laughs> I'll start Stanley. debunking it. Well, I've I've read Superman origin stories where, in order to get from Krypton to Earth, the ship he's on opens up like a little wormhole. Right, and, and some as that the, happens, a whole like tons of kryptonite follows him through the, through wormhole. the wormhole. Sure, like say the fastest spaceship ever made, which is like New Horizons, which is currently going out to Pluto. It would take a good, what, 100,000 years to get to the nearest star. And that's with an engine firing. If Alpha Centauri, a planet around Alpha Centauri blew up, it would take 100,000 years for the chunks of kryptonite to get here, and none would get here, right? Because <laughs> yeah. space is really vast, and yeah. they would all just get collected in, in the gravitational well of the star itself. So so then let's assume that we've got the, the little wormhole thing going on. Right. Sure, sure, fine. So give them the wormhole. Then it's all great. And if we're doing this the other way around, where Earth has exploded and we've gone to Alpha Centauri, mm-hmm. and we've got great powers, why are pieces of Earth causing us to lose our powers exactly? Because they're all radioactive? It's because the wormhole modified them. I don't know. <laughs> it's magic, man. It's magic. Right. It is magic. You can fly and bullets bounce off you. That How? also doesn't make sense. Really? You're, you're Now you're nitpicking that? How? <laughs> yeah. How dare you question the logic of Joe Schuster? A great Canadian icon. Torin, next you're going to be questioning how people came back from the dead in the Bible. 
Like, really? I just remember in Super Friends when Superman was taking the two halves of the moon and stuck them back together and <laughs> welded them with his supervision. That that was the line. <laughs> well, in the, that it, was it? Okay. A, a good book that, that I read recently, The Physics of Superheroes by James Kakalios. He talks a lot about sort of the science behind all this, and he gives every single one a miracle exemption. He says there's one, one thing one, we can overlook. Sure. And if we overlook that one thing, then see if the science works for the rest of it. Right. And yeah, he, he explores in great detail the atom, the character who derived his powers from a piece of dark matter that he found on the side of the road. Oh, okay. He shows, he actually has the comic page excerpted in the book where the atom sees this piece of dark matter and picks it up and puts it in the back of his car and drives it to his lab and then goes on to become the atom. But uh, the science part that Mr. Kakalios could not wrap his mind around is that the piece of dark matter, the size that it was, would have weighed somewhere in the realm of like 3,000 million tons or something like that. And Can that, I be that. pedantic for a second? Yes. So dark matter, nobody has any idea what it is? I do. You know, we don't even know what it is. It might not even exist. But, but I think what they're talking about is like a chunk of like a neutron star. Yeah. Mm. Or a white dwarf. So I think you're right. When a star dies, it compresses down into this this substance, a which is super compressed, and yeah, one teaspoon weighs ten billion tons or something. I found this, the page in the book yeah. on that. It's a white dwarf star fragment. There you go, white dwarf star fragment. That's I didn't know what it was, but I knew it was wrong, so I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to do that to you. That's okay. I, I feel free to correct me. But I think that's the only legitimate, reasonable way that you can approach these conversations at all. Mr. Kakalius points out that the part that he struggles with, because giving him the miracle exemption that he could create the powers of the atom from this matter, the fact that he could actually lift the matter in the first place was the uh, what ma- what make and model was his was yeah, his car. That is that's what I want to know. Good suspension on that. Could he just touch? it like why does he have to carry it pick it up yeah it, it, well, so nobody else gets powers the, yeah there you go <laughs> greedy bastard well no even like the gravity of a object like that would be bad for you oh it'd be bad for the planet right yeah. <laughs> like earth would oh, yeah. spin would you, off would its axis like, or something just be sucked right into it i just found it he calculates it at uh 45 million kilograms so like a like a mountain yeah, yeah. the mass of a mountain uh, slightly smaller than his head so it's i'd say it's about the size of a five pin bowling ball yeah, to get a good exi- idea of that is, you know, like watch Futurama, right? Where they're trying to yeah. carry around the, <laughs> the dark nibble of dark <laughs> yeah. Except that, you know, that is truly dark matter. Yeah. <laughs> well, it came out of a very dark hole. <laughs> Thank you very much to Fraser Kane. It was my pleasure. Anytime. And uh, we might get you back for our uh, Solar Prominences episode then, oh, nice. if you truly mean anytime. I will, I will, prom- I will feature prominently <laughs> in it. All right. <laughs> nice. Lovely. And we'll see you on astronomycast.com. You can get it on iTunes, and you can also read my website at universetoday.com. <laughs>